This week's podcast sponsor is Edgility Consulting, a full-service national executive search and talent consulting firm. Edgility helps clients find, hire, and support the talent they need to make a difference in the lives of youth. Put them to work for you. Learn more at edgilityconsulting.com. Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. Okay, today we're talking about news literacy and the challenge of teaching students to get through this crazy information landscape we're in, which, let's face it, it feels kind of impossible for even experienced news consumers. What are the stakes of making sure the next generation can sort fact from spin or fact from propaganda? Here's how a 10th grader in Southern California put it. Well, I think if misinformation gets spread and enough people believe it, it could cause problems and a lot of people will left, will be left confused about what's true and what's not true. And so I think it's really important to know what news is real and what's factual and if all the facts are there. That's Valeria Lukin, a 15-year-old who's recently gone through a journalism course that went over the basics of news literacy. The course used materials created by a nonprofit called the News Literacy Project, It provides a set of online materials and curriculum for students, and it offers professional development for teachers. So for this student, before taking the course, news was really just something kind of in the background. I wouldn't really pay too much attention to the news. I just would get the highlights, I guess you can say, or what my parents would tell me. That's probably the way a lot of students see it. Our guest today is Peter Adams, who has years of experience working with students like this, first as a classroom teacher, then as a college instructor, and currently as Senior Vice President for Education at the News Literacy Project. This, this topic's obviously a big one for me, uh, near and dear to my heart as a journalist, and I was curious to hear what Adams thought about how things are changing and, and what's the biggest misconception that teachers have about how to make their students news literate. If you want to catch Adams in person, he'll actually be a speaker at the Ed Surge Fusion Conference in November, which aims to tell stories of educators and highlight practices that work. You can learn more about that at bit.ly slash edsurgefusionconference. This is basically our publication's big national event that we do now every year. And near the end of today's episode, we'll come back to that student in California to hear how her thoughts and feelings of news have changed. I started my conversation with Adams, who's been working with students for decades, by asking him how the media landscape has changed. Uh, a lot. Um, I mean, even from the time where I started teaching in the late 90s, you know, was sort of early web uh, GeoCities websites and things like that. Um, really, with the advent of the first iPhone, right in the mid-aughts, like 2006, um, uh, everything changed. Uh, and social media really took off. So, you know, mobile technology, I think, and social media were the two big drivers of the of the changes we're seeing um and uh yeah i mean that's just had a ripple effect so there's so much more information being generated uh, a lot of it from from phones uh, but also from people being able to to post and publish on a whim and also to share uh really easily and so that's led to you know to all sorts of of things both positive but also challenging and and in some cases negative I feel like I've seen surveys about how kids consume media, but from yeah. the from your ground level view, what do you feel like, you know, social media obviously it sounds like it's a big part of it, but what else what else did you see or notice as far as how students were either perceiving media or consuming it or both? Um it it depends. I think I think that um 
obviously social media plays a huge role that, that, you know, YouTube and Snapchat and Instagram are, are huge platforms and places that teens naturally go. Um, one misconception I think we see a lot is, you know, kind of alarmist coverage that, oh, teens are getting all their information from social media. But I'm always sort of quick to point out that that's not always a bad thing. So um, is that because social media, in other words, could be carrying New York Times? Exactly. It depends on who you like and follow. So you can use you can use Twitter, for example, to put yourself in the way of a lot of credible information. Um, Every time you check your feed, it just depends on who you like and follow. Um, so the, the platforms themselves, you know, they're not neutral. They certainly have algorithms that are curating things for you and suggesting things for you, but you need to be aware of how they work. But you can also use them to encounter a lot of credible information, so it really uh, depends. The other thing I worry about when it comes to, you know, media literacy education broadly is that, you know, we teach students skepticism, but we don't make them cynical. So um, we don't want students to think that all information is somehow out to manipulate them, that everything is tactical. Every headline, every straight news piece wants something, has some ulterior motive, because that's really pushing them into a a kind of disempowering cynicism that opens them up to a lot of... uh, disinformation and, and, and conspiratorial thinking. And, and so I think keeping stu- you know, helping students be skeptical and critical in, in ways that don't tip over into that territory is something that we really work hard at. So it's, yeah, it's almost like the, the, the message, if the message gets across too much that media has bias and that you need to look for those biases, if you're always looking for biases, you're not necessarily open to, uh, what's been done as an objective report. Well, right. I mean, it's so, you know, we actually are just remade our lesson about bias. And, you know, one thing that we found when teachers, that it's an important topic, everybody's really interested in it. And too often, I think educators kind of put up an example of media and they say, maybe it's straight news, maybe it's not, and say, hmm. what's the bias? And so it's sort of like faces in the clouds. Students will kind of read bias into a piece, but they also take their own biases sort of for granted. They're not remembering that their experience of media is subjective, right? So that's why progressives and conservatives online um, allege bias about the same coverage, right? Liberals think the, the media is too conservative, and conservatives think the media broadly is too liberal. And you can't characterize that broadly anyway. So we're trying to move students into a more nuanced understanding to say, look, what counts as bias in the first place? Aside from partisan bias, what other kinds of biases are there, right? There's demographic bias, there's a bias toward big stories or newsworthiness and so on. So what kind of bias are you seeing? And then how is it being expressed? Is it loaded language? Is, are they, you know, is, it in the, is it in the news judgment and so on? That's so interesting. And so when you're working with teachers um, in these professional developments and other ways, um, what do you think is the biggest either misconception or things that teachers that that you may help the teachers understand that that helps them about news literacy? I mean, you know, teachers uh, like like other members of the general public often don't understand how newsrooms operate. um, And it's like the general public pretty much not their fault because news outlets did a terrible job of explaining how they do what they do, of explaining their decision-making processes, of explaining standards, of explaining, you know, usage standards, for example, um, or how they make news judgments to the public um, until they needed to, and then it was too late. So, um, you know, they really learn a lot about 
things as, as fundamental as what the difference is between a reporter and a columnist and how the rules shift or the fact that there's a firewall between the business side of a newsroom's operations and the editorial side uh, and that consumers need to watch for any sort of evidence that, that business interests have influenced coverage in some way but that that is an aspiration at a serious legitimate news organization. Um, and get to talk to journalists about their practices, uh, how they report things. Um, one topic that we were talking about earlier that teachers always want to talk about is bias, but getting to actually talk to a reporter about how they, you know, um, how they think about the pursuit or aspiration to be objective and, and to, you know, use a methodology to, to try to be as objective as possible um, in practice is really very uh, helpful, I think, to, to help educators get a more nuanced understanding of the way um, journalism works, and that inevitably makes their way into, into the classroom. Right, and then the teachers can pass that on to the students with examples. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and when students understand, so for example, one of our core lessons teaches students seven mainstay standards of quality journalism, right? And when students understand what the standards are, if they understand the ideals by which news outlets operate or say they operate, when they fall short of those standards, students then have the vocabulary right and the ability to call them out or to engage them in a discussion right i think this you know it's the difference between saying the media is ignoring this story or saying you know you've only done four pieces on this in the last two years and it's undercovered and here's why i think it's newsworthy right this is important it's highly interesting it has a big impact um, and so on and so forth. So when you speak the language of journalism to journalists, you're much more likely to get a response and ultimately make journalism better, right? Um, but from the demand side, you're also helping students understand the role that quality journalism plays in their lives and in uh, their communities and in the democracy. After the break, more of that student perspective on news literacy and whether Adams worries if news consumers are being asked to do too much or whether something else needs to change to help us manage this information overload. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Agility, a company that helps education organizations find, hire, and keep high-quality talent. I recently talked with Agility's co-founder, Christina Greenberg, who stressed the benefits of taking an objective approach to hiring and the pitfalls of selecting a candidate based on culture fit. You really do need to use evidence. There is a level of, of course, judgment that we're all going to make. <laughs> but as much as possible, how do we eliminate our bias? With our clients, we do anti-bias sessions, actually, with everyone. Before they meet candidates, right, and interview them, we do an anti-bias session with them. But how do we really think about the quality, skills, competencies that are most necessary for someone to do a great job and not just, oh, I like that person? Because to go back to my first point, I may like them because they look like me or seem like me, right? or culture fit, which I know everyone thinks is a great thing, but actually is often a pitfall. Yeah, you always hear about culture fit. Isn't that so cool out there in the valley, especially, but you know, all over? And I tell everyone how uncomfortable, I tell everyone I'm very uncomfortable with culture fit because it can also be a screen, right? For someone I feel comfortable Mm. with or someone I like. Like it's almost code for something else that people don't even realize it might be. I think it often is. Yeah, Yeah, not always, right? I'm not saying it always is. And what I tell everyone is, of course, a culture, but rather than just saying culture fit, which can be a catch-all for lots of different things, positive and negative, how do we think about the skills, qualities, characteristics that mean that someone's going to be successful here? To find out more about Agility, visit agilityconsulting.com. That's E-D-G-I-L-I-T-Y consulting.com. 
now back to the episode. This there's kind of it feels like sometimes with uh, the current president and even some other voices out there, uh, criticism of the bias in journalism and that's almost a vilification of journalism. Do you feel like there's are there is there anyone that um, pushes back on teaching news literacy or 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 the way you teach it? Is it become a political issue at all in the classroom? Not really. I mean, so we are really pretty rigorously nonpartisan. Um, we've encountered actually shockingly few accusations of, of bias. Um, um, but, uh, it, you know, we're very aware of the, of the polarized moment in which we're operating. Um, and we are, you know, very careful to choose examples um, that that help people understand the the pitfalls and perils of the information landscape, sort of across the political spectrum. Um, tackling a topic like bias, again, you know, we try to help students understand that partisan bias is just one type of bias um, that people allege. It's certainly the most common. Mm-hmm. Um, but to get them thinking about questions like, um, you know, every, people are fond of saying like this coverage leans left or leans right. But what does that really mean in practice and who decides and what's the center and who decides? And if I stripped away the branding from five straight news pieces from the same news cycle about the same topic, could you match them back up with their brands? Or is it much more complex and nuanced than you thought? And if we can get students wrestling with that, I mean, if we can get students to say, you know what, there's a lot more to this than I, than I thought uh, when I started this, then we've kind of won the day, right? It's an important topic, but it's not nearly as easy, I think, as people tend to think it is. Um, and, and that's an important realization. Hmm. Now, um, I wanted you. To, I wanted to get back to that um, pitch that you're making to teachers because I think it's really interesting. You know, yeah. it is kind of the. What would you say to a teacher who feels like they either don't need some of your tools you you have or their tra- or the trainings you do? Um, and what what why do you even need to teach news literacy? I mean, so information is sort of the foundation of our society, right? Um, it's the very stuff of democracy. Um, it's the way people make decisions and the decisions they make determine their actions. And so if we don't empower students to evaluate the quality and credibility of the information around them, uh, again, we're actively disempowering them or disabling them from making the best decisions for themselves, for their families, for their communities, and for the country uh, and the world. Um, and, you know, the, not to mention, they are also grappling with the largest and most complex information landscape in human history, um, not by a little bit, by, by many, many magnitudes, right? So um, there are a lot of powerful tools at their disposal. Um, they can access a lot of inform- much more information than any other generation in history, um, but they also need the ability to not be exploited by uh, the unprecedented amount of of uh, mis and disinformation that's out there, um, seeking to, you know, harness their passions, exploit their values, uh, and manipulate them. Yeah. And do you feel like that is resonating with teachers that you, and, and their students? Absolutely. I mean, it's never a hard sell. Uh, when we do RPD sessions, you know, we get, uh, uh, a lot of interest up front at conferences and things. People recognize that this is an issue that they need to pay attention to. A lot of teachers, a lot of educators have been working in this space or, or teaching some form of news or media or information literacy for a long time. Um, but the, the landscape is shifting so quickly 
um, that even if you've been working with students around some of this stuff or working in the field for 10 years, you may not exactly know how to help them understand what computational propaganda is, what a bot might be, or how you could tell with what degree of certainty how they're being deployed, um, how uh, you know uh, coordinated information influence campaigns work online, and what some of the red flags are that you should watch out for. Um, stuff like that uh, emerges and shifts um, uh, on a on a you know near constant basis. Um, you know, everybody's talking about deep fakes in 2020. That's not something we were talking about in 2016. Uh, maybe even in 2018. So um, it's all moving so quickly that teachers need a fighting chance to keep up, uh, and that's the role that we try to play. Uh, even as a journalist, I feel like I want to take some of these trainings. I, I, I you know, we we all struggle, I think, to, yeah, to follow I mean, the the news and and keep up with it. Yeah. And there are a lot of great organizations that are doing that for journalists as well. You know, uh, First Draft, First Draft yep. is doing a lot of great trainings for journalists. Um, I don't know if you've heard of. Joy Mayer's uh, Trusting News Project. I have. Uh, yeah. yeah, so she, yep. you know, they work with newsrooms to get them to do exactly what a lot of what we do, which is help the public understand what their decision-making process is. Um, and if they could just explain, they can diffuse a lot of the assumptions and cynicism that's out there um, and, and really engage their audiences. Yeah, interesting. So I guess to, to um, for those who may not know what your organization um, provides um, the the core the core service is a virtual classroom, right? Yeah. So the Checkology Virtual Classroom is a news literacy e learning platform um, that has thirteen full length uh, lessons, um, and then uh, those lessons are supplemented and accompanied by exercises, which are kind of like practice sets for comp- you know compilations of examples. Uh, and then challenges, which are extensions of the skills and concepts in the lessons. So a big, you know, a big part of the what we provide are not just lessons, but curated examples that are, you know, timely um, from across the the digital landscape. Um, so students will be evaluating a YouTube video, uh, a web page, uh, an Instagram post, a Reddit comment. Uh, a doctored image from Imager and so on and so forth. So we really mm-hmm. try to, we spend a lot of time, my team spends a lot of time combing the web, uh, going to some bizarre channels and spaces and curating examples so that students can decide, you know, in one lesson what they're looking at. Is this an ad? Is this a piece of news? Is this an opinion? Is this a piece of propaganda? Is this raw information? Is this just cell phone video? Um, in other lessons, they might be deciding what type of, uh, of bias they perceive in this example or, you know, in another lesson, how newsworthy something is or isn't. So um, using authentic examples, but in a closed environment that's not out on Instagram or Facebook in a safe place that's on rails uh, is a big um, plus, you know, getting students ready to, to act responsibly uh, online. Okay. So getting back to that student we heard from at the top of the episode, I asked her, what is different as far as understanding the news after going through these materials made by the News Literacy Project? I really took away with the knowledge that journalists have a really important role in our world. And they have, like, it's not free for everybody in the world to be able to speak their minds. And we're really lucky to have the First Amendment to, like, defend journalists where we live here. And it just made me appreciate journalists and journalism and news in general, overall. Mm, it sounds like you've got a better sense of like what it takes to make a news story. 
yeah, I really got to understand how much work it put in to get out, to release a credible and factual news story or piece of information. In fact, now she even finds herself helping other people check their facts, even her parents. I was at home and we were eating dinner with my family and my dad was watching a documentary. It was a history documentary on Netflix, but I can't remember which one it was called. And he was talking to me about it. And I, I just, I don't know why, but I asked him like, are you sure what you're hearing is factual? Like if it's correct and accurate. And he stopped and he looked at me and he was shocked by how much, like by what I had asked. And after he had told me, he was, he saw that it was really um, more critical and more thoughtful about what information I hear and what I would do afterwards. So this is all a lot of work for all of us. I mean, just to watch Netflix or check social media feed and process all this. So I asked Adams whether it's it's even realistic to expect everyone out there to, to go through courses like this to just kind of get through our information day. Do you worry at all that it's like become too much of a burden for the news consumer in a way? Too much to ask almost for, um, for that side and that something maybe more systemic needs to be done to, to address it at a different level? Sure. I mean, I think there's lots of things that different players and institutions need to do, right? Um, journalism is changing dramatically, and I think there are a lot of things news outlets need to do. Um, they need to, to collaborate more with the communities they cover, clearly. Um, they, they have big strides to make in terms of newsroom diversity. That This we know, right? Um, and they need to figure out how to operate in an attention economy uh, or, or how to how to how to sustain their their business. Um, paywalls have some advantages and disadvantages. Uh, digital ads have advantages and disadvantages, um, and it's difficult. Um, you know, consumers need to do some of the work of of becoming more um, news literate and more aware and less vulnerable to misinformation. Um, social media platforms have a lot of work to do when it comes to their enforcing their terms of service. Um, you know, curating their communities, um, giving researchers the data and tools they need to help them understand how mis and disinformation are moving through their platforms, which they're not very good at or not very forthcoming about. So um, I think it's, it's, it's a both-and solution, right, across the board. Um, but as, you know, as educators, I think this is what we know we can do and what we know is important to do for teens um, to help inoculate them against some of the, the stuff that's out there to exploit them and to, to manipulate them uh, to do things that may or may not be in their own, you know, in their own best interest um, and uh, which really, you know, further divide um, uh, our body politic. I mean, we know that the Russians sought to target um, polarized issues, you know, issues around which Americans were already polarized and pull us further apart. Um, and so helping students develop an internal system of red flags to avoid that is, is really key. Well, thank you so much for sharing this today and talking about these issues. Appreciate it. Absolutely. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you interviews like this one, so please subscribe to make sure to catch every new episode. As regular listeners know, every week I kind of come on here and say, please leave us a rating. You know, a lot of podcasts do this. I just want to underline this this week. It takes just a minute 
um, wherever you're listening, whatever app you're using to, to listen to podcasts, just click and, and leave us a five-star rating. Um, it really makes a difference. It's, it's actually the best way right now you can support the show and make sure we can keep, keep doing episodes like this one. A couple of weeks back, we did an episode on academic satire, which as an English major back in the day was a real treat for me. And we asked listeners to suggest their favorite fictional spoofs of higher ed. We did get a few. Um, here's one from a consultant who wrote in and said, don't forget Kingsley Adams' Lucky Jim. Okay, good one. We, we did not put that on our list. We have a list on that, on that show page of, of some suggested by our guests. If you have any comments about this or any episode, feel free to send them to me at jeff at edsurge.com. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young, and special thanks to Valeria Lukin for taking a few minutes to share a student's perspective with us. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening.